I'm Tracy Sable. Tonight on EWTN News Nightly, a reason to hope. Israel and Hamas appear to be inching toward a deal to release some of the captives. We talked to a former Israeli hostage negotiator. Down to business. Our President Joe Biden plans to tackle the U.S. fentanyl crisis in light of his recent global meetings. Papal warning. Pope Francis expresses deep reservations about the direction of the Catholic Church in Germany. And time for a feast. EWTN's father, Leo Paddlinghug, shares some of his tasty recipes for Thanksgiving. These stories and more tonight. From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly. Thank you for being with us on the Feast of the Presentation of Mary. Our top story tonight, there is cautious optimism that a deal to release dozens of the hostages held by Hamas in exchange for a pause in fighting in Gaza could soon be announced. Here's Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. We are making progress. I don't think it's worth saying more, even at this moment, but I hope there will be good news soon. So here is what we know about the potential deal so far. 50 women and children would be released. There would be a four to five day pause in the fighting and three Palestinian prisoners would be traded for every one hostage. I want to bring in now Gershon Baskin. He is the Middle East director of the International Communities Organization, a human rights advocacy group. Gershon, thank you for your time. Uh, Israeli officials have been meeting to discuss a hostage deal. What does that signal to you? We understand there'll be women and children. We understand they'll be released in groups of 10. It'll be logistically difficult for Hamas because they don't want to disclose the locations where these hostages are being hidden. This is why they have demanded that Israel stop all drone flying above Gaza. Uh, apparently, from what we've been told so far, Israel has agreed that during the times when hostages are going to be released, there won't be drones flying. But there will be at other times because Israel will be redeploying its forces to more secure locations in the hope that Hamas does not violate the ceasefire. And I understand that you spearheaded uh, back-channel negotiations with Hamas for the release of Israeli soldier Gilad Shalit, uh, who was kidnapped by the militant group uh, during a cross-border attack back in 2006 and held hostage in Gaza for five years. Uh, Is this situation similar? And for those who don't really understand that or know about that, could you kind of explain that a little bit to us? Sure. I mean, Gilad Shalit was one Israeli soldier who was held in captivity in Gaza for a period of five years and four months. He was eventually released in a deal negotiated between Israel and Hamas that I helped to negotiate, um, where Israel released 1,027 Palestinian prisoners for one Israeli soldier, including more than 300 Palestinians who had killed Israelis, including four prisoners who had killed my wife's cousin. Uh, amongst the released prisoners included the current leadership of Hamas in Gaza. Yahya Sinwar was the most senior Hamas leader who was released in that deal, and he's the one who's masterminded and led the uh, atrocities that took place in Israel on October 7th. Um, the similarity right now that we're facing is the logistic procedures. On the day that Gilad Shalit was released in Gaza, After Israel had no ability to discover where he was, Hamas set out 30 identical vehicles from the center of Rafah to the Rafah border crossing, and Gilad Shalit wasn't in any of those 30 vehicles. He was in another vehicle that went on a different route, and even to the very last moment, Hamas was able to keep uh, secret the place where he was kept hidden during those five years. 
it, it will be a bit more tricky for Hamas to release 50 hostages in groups of 10 without disclosing their location. I, I'm wondering how they're going to do it. They they are very smart and very deceptive in these kind of operations. Gershon, I mean, what do you think uh, the strategy is or, or was with Hamas in taking these hostages? I'm not sure that they planned to take so many women and children, infants and old people. Um, they didn't plan to break through the Israeli border as easily as they did. Some 3,000 Palestinians crossed that border during October 7th. Um, and, and it's bewildering to imagine that they could have even thought it would be possible to break through the border. I think that most of their soldiers who fought their elite force pretty much assumed that they were going to be killed. Many of them were killed on that day, but they did an awful lot of killing themselves. Um, a lot of people who are not Hamas, Islamic Jihad, Popular Resistance Front, other groups crossed the border, and they also took hostages. They were all instructed by Hamas to take hostages into Gaza uh, because the ultimate the mission of Yahya Sinwar, the leader of Hamas in Gaza, is to free Palestinian prisoners. How do you see this conflict playing out? I mean, how do you think it ends between Israel and Hamas? Well, I think that Hamas will no longer be in power in Gaza at the end of this war. There's no scenario where the leaders of Hamas are alive at the end of this war. The big question is, how do the Israeli people and the Palestinian people manage to overcome the traumas that we've experienced? The Israelis, the biggest trauma since the Holocaust, and without comparison for the Palestinians, the biggest trauma since their Nakba tragedy of 1948. We need a new generation of Israelis and Palestinians who are going to have what I've been calling our Belfast moment, the moment when we stand up and decide to look forward and say no more. We have so much history of killing and suffering and damage and destruction. We really need a new generation of leaders who are going to stand up and say we have to create a different future. Agarshan, thank you so much for your time and for your insights. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Regarding the hostages possibly being freed, President Joe Biden told reporters this morning we are now very close. And he added things are looking good at the moment. White House correspondent Owen Jensen reports. Owen. Tracy, good evening to you. President Joe Biden made those comments just before convening a meeting with members of his cabinet on the deadly drug fentanyl. Now, you could tell just by his tone, he was very cautious about revealing any more possible hostage deal details. With members of his cabinet seated near him in the Roosevelt Room, President Joe Biden tells reporters... We're now very close, very close. Uh, could bring uh, some of these hostages home very soon. The president cautiously optimistic. He did not want to get ahead of himself. But I don't want to get into the, into the details of things because nothing is done until it's done. And uh, we have more to say. We will. But things are looking good at the moment. Meanwhile, family members of the hostages pleading for their release, desperate and heartbroken. Talk of deals making their pain worse. Liz Hirsch-Naftali calls it an emotional roller coaster and won't believe any deal until she actually sees the hostages come out, among them her three-year-old niece. When I think about that on Friday is Abigail's fourth birthday and that she should be home with her family and with her sister and brother. And at the U.S. State Department today, this update on the hostage situation and whether any deal is imminent. The implementation and execution of an agreement, should one be reached, requires 
the cooperation of Hamas, a terrorist organization. So it's why we're always hesitant to um, uh, say too much about what will happen before it has happened. While the White House works to free the hostages, President Biden also addressed the opioid epidemic, saying his administration is working intensely to address the threat, adding it demands global action. So we're pursuing strong international coordination to strangle the flow of these deadly drugs. President Biden also added curbing the opioid epidemic is something every American can get behind, Republican or Democrat. He also said it's an issue hurting families in every state across the nation. At the White House, Owen Jensen, EWTN News Nightly. A group of pro-life Republican lawmakers from both the U.S. House and Senate filed an advocate's brief to the U.S. Supreme Court. They are asking the justices to pass on reviewing a Fifth Circuit court's decision that could curb access to the abortion drug Mifepristone. Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales joins us now with more. Eric. Well, good evening, Tracy. 109 GOP lawmakers actually signed that amicus brief. They say when the abortion pill mefepristone was approved by the Food and Drug Administration in the year 2000 that there were approval irregularities. Lawmakers claim that the FDA overstepped its authority, and they say that these abortion pills are not only dangerous for the unborn infant, but also for the expected mother. There's no way you can do a self-abortion. That is, it's dangerous enough with an attending physician. Why on earth would we put these women at risk, home, alone to do this? Congressional Pro-Life Caucus co-chair, Mississippi Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith, led the group of GOP lawmakers who signed the amicus brief to the U.S. Supreme Court. It was authored by Americans United for Life. The letter states by approving and then deregulating chemical abortion drugs, quote, the FDA failed to follow Congress's statutorily prescribed drug approval process. Earlier this year, following directives by President Biden, the FDA announced the loosening of safety requirements to allow retail pharmacies to distribute the chemical abortion drug mefepristone by prescription. The chairman of the USCCB's Committee on Pro-Life Activities issued a statement, which reads in part, quote, the Catholic Church is consistent in its teaching on upholding the dignity of all life. We decry the continuing push for the destruction of innocent human lives and the loosening of vital safety standards for vulnerable women. The DOJ is also urging the high court to make it easier to access abortion drugs through the mail. Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith authored a bill to ban it, but Democratic leadership refuses to bring it to the floor for a vote. And talking to my friends that are OBGYNs, you know, they say when that woman swallows that pill, she has no idea what about to happen to her body. GOP lawmakers agree that defeats have taken place uh, in the pro-life community with the, with the past elections, but they say that they still believe it's through education and through technology like sonograms, where the expected mother can actually see the heartbeat of the child, the unborn child, and the hands and feet that they believe that the right decisions will be made. At the Capitol, Eric Rosales, EWTN News Nightly. According to authorities in the Republic of Congo, at least 37 people have been killed in a stampede at a stadium. Crowds of young people lined up for a military recruitment event in the face of 42 percent youth unemployment in the Central African nation. A public prosecutor says an investigation will be launched and all further recruitment operations have been suspended in the city until further notice. We have a lot more still to come here on EWTN News Nightly, including papal warning. Pope Francis reveals deep reservations about the direction of the church in Germany. We have the latest and how a Catholic aid group is calling attention to the global persecution of Christians.
DeSantis says he has deep reservations about the direction of the Catholic Church in Germany. The remarks came in a letter to four German Catholic laywomen. It was published in the newspaper Welt earlier today. Pope Francis says the church in Germany is being steered away from the universal church's common path, adding that the country's synodal way is not in alignment with the sacramental structure of the Catholic Church. We go now to A.C. Wimmer, the founding editor-in-chief of Catholic News Agency. Deutsch, A.C., great to be with you as always. So tell us, what else was in this letter to the four German laywomen, and do we know anything about the letter they sent to the Holy Father, which prompted his response? Thank you, Tracy. It's great to be here. Yes, we do know, and we've also spoken to the women who received the answer from the Holy Father just in the last few hours, Tracy. And there is a picture here forming of deep concern by the Holy Father, although it's one that we're familiar with. He raised it first in 2019 in his letter to the pilgrims of the Church in Germany, the German Catholics, and he's reiterated those concerns repeatedly, as I'm sure your viewers know. He's called the German Synodal Way elitist and neither helpful nor serious in the past. And now he's sort of, you know, honing in on a particular issue. That is the establishment of a permanent German Synodal Council, which would be a body that would oversee the church in Germany, made up of bishops, but also lay people. And that is not in alignment with the sacramental structure of the Catholic Church. The Holy Father wrote in this letter to those four eminent German theologians, philosophers and a journalist. AC, how did the Holy Father's letter appear in the German newspaper? The German newspaper, the Welt, which has great connections to those philosophers and theologians, has published the full letter, and you can read the full translation in English over at catholicnewsagency.com, Tracy. And in that letter and in the article, you can see that the Holy Father only took four days to respond to the letter that those four women who prominently quit the German Synodal Way, of which they were delegates, over concerns they have with the direction of this event, that he answered within 10 days. They sent the letter on November the 6th. He answered on November the 10th, and it's now come to public. AC, what has been the reaction among the faithful in Germany and even at the Vatican to the Holy Father's words on the church in Germany? The Vatican's intervened repeatedly. We've published a timeline over on CNA where you can see how those events have sort of piled up over the last few years since 2019. But Tracy, I think the most important part is whether and how we will see reactions. So that's the pertinent question. One of the theologians behind the new beginning, an initiative that's critical of the German Synodal Way, has already called on a, on a, for a halt and on the German bishops to consider now, in the wake of the latest letter, the establishment of such a synodal council. At the same time, I heard from one of the four recipients of the letter that she is not expecting an official response from the German bishops. But she says, I quote, unrest is growing and it will not be so easy to continue to gather the bishops around this matter almost unanimously. And she says, it's the philosopher Hanna-Barbara Gelfarkowitz, that the letter will inspire renewed confidence that the situation of the church in Germany will change for the better at the penultimate minute. AC, almost out of time, but quickly, I mean, we know Pope Francis has spoken several times about the Sonata Way, but what happens if the Germans just keep pushing ahead with this radical agenda? What might happen, Tracy, of course, is anyone's guess. The Holy Father would know, but the Vatican certainly has the ability to come good on those concerns in a sense that canonical procedures could be put in place and the German bishops could simply be told by the German, uh, by the Holy Father, to stop with this process, to not establish the permanent synodal council. 
And there is a significant minority of bishops who share the concerns the Holy Father has raised. So we might see this sort of coming out in the next few days and weeks as well, Tracy, perhaps with a Vatican intervention, but perhaps also from within Germany itself. All right, AC, thank you so much. And we know you'll continue to follow this as we will as well. Thanks a bunch. Thank you kindly. Well, we are nearly halfway through an initiative aimed at raising awareness of the global persecution of Christians. Red Week began nearly a decade ago. It was started by the Catholic group Aid to the Church in Need and draws attention by projecting red lights onto hundreds of cathedrals, churches and monuments. Joining us now from Germany is Mark von Riedemann, head of advocacy at ACN International. Mark, great to be with you today. Uh, tell us more about the initiative and also what are the main activities that you all prepared for this year's Red Week? Okay, so the Red Week goes back actually to an effort that was in 2015 by our Brazilian office in Rio when they saw the suffering of the Christians um, by the violence being inflicted on them um, by ISIS in Iraq. And so they lit the Christ the Redeemer statue red in commemoration. And after this, it kind of took its own dynamic. And today we have uh, a Red Week where uh, we have about 10,000 people expected to attend at events in over a dozen countries around the world. And we're going to be lighting, for example, about 20 cathedrals around the world, including, for example, St. Patrick's in Australia, uh, about 100 churches in Germany, about 150 churches in the Netherlands, and another 100 churches in Austria, including the parliament is going to be lit for the, red, for the first time in Austria. Mark, when it comes to persecuted Christians, um, what are the areas uh, of most concern? And also, is the situation getting better or worse as you see it? I, I would have to say, regrettably, the situation is getting worse. Um, we produce a religious freedom report every two years. And what we see is the reports are almost prophetic. And we see that Christian persecution is getting more acute and more intense. And, for example, uh, just very straightforward, almost 4.9 billion people live in countries where there's serious or very serious uh, violations of religious freedom. That's almost one third of the world's countries. And Christians, by the very fact that they are in almost every country all around the world, is still the biggest faith group suffering persecution. And just some examples for you. Uh, Terrorist, exam, uh, terrorist attacks, for example, by Islamist groups in the Middle East and Sub-Saharan Africa are exploding, and the Christians are suffering tremendous uh, violation and persecution. Mass surveillance in China, for example, you have 560 million cameras which are tracking churchgoers because they may be considered a threat to the state. Um, Anti-conversion laws are occurring in India and expanding now also in Nepal, Nepal where, for example, those who want to become uh, change their religion, for example, from Hinduism to Christianity, are being financially penalized, but so are those that might be helping them, the spiritual guide. And so churches are being less able to invite people to consider coming to Christianity. So this just gives you a perspective in a very brief way of the scope of the problem facing Christians today around the world. Mark, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about all this really important. We appreciate it. God bless. Thank you very much. It was great to be with you. Up next on EWTN News Nightly, 
Food for Thought. EWTN's father, Leo Padalinghug, shares some helpful tips for this Thanksgiving. Plus, the miracle of life. A Catholic priest gets more than he bargained for while trying to buy donuts. We'll explain. Welcome back. While Thanksgiving isn't technically a religious holiday, the feast and its meaning share a deep connection with the Catholic faith. The term Eucharist is derived from the Greek word Eucharisting, which actually means Thanksgiving. That Greek word can be found in the New Testament, referring to a Jewish blessing often during a meal proclaiming God's work of creation, redemption, and sanctification. And here to reflect more on the meaning of Thanksgiving is Father Leo Padalinghung, Catholic priest, author, speaker, award-winning chef, and host of Savoring Our Faith right here on EWTN. Father Leo, great to have you back. Um, as we approach the hol- holiday, let's talk more about Thanksgiving and this connection to the Eucharist, the source of our spiritual nourishment. Well, actually, it happened on December the 8th in the 1500s in the now diocese of St. Augustine in Florida, where the first Thanksgiving in the United States took place because a mass was celebrated there. That preceded, obviously, almost 100 years prior to what we now traditionally know as Thanksgiving that happened, say, on, in, the, in the northern part of America. And we just know that for us as Catholics, Thanksgiving happens every time we remember Christ in the Eucharist, which for us is a perpetual giving thanks to God for all the blessings he's given to us. Father Leo, how would you encourage Catholics to approach this holiday and also, you know, share their faith with those that gather around with them? Well, it's an interesting time in our our nation's history and even our church's experience of faith because there are just so many challenges. But what I always want to remind people is that if we actually count our blessings, they always outweigh more than what the challenges are in our life. And strangely enough, the things that we're grateful for actually give us challenge. And so we always have to take this as not as an emotional celebration, but truly a deeply spiritual one where we're always connecting our life to the cross, where the challenges in our life can actually be blessings if we put those challenges in God's hands. And so we got to approach it spiritually by going to Mass, making sure that we do charity for others, and then always making sure that we invite God to the dinner table because he's not only the premier guest, he actually is our sacred meal in the Eucharist. Yeah, so important to remember. I want to talk turkey now. Uh, When it comes to food, Thanksgiving is kind of like the Super Bowl of meals, I think. So if you don't mind, can you share maybe some of your favorite dishes and maybe what you'll be serving up or eating this year? Yeah, first of all, I'm serving no drama. So get rid of all of the drama that happens oftentimes in preparing the meal. Keep things simple and make sure that we're providing food that's not going to go to waste. And for me, I always like to make sure that uh, while I'm super big into the turkey, I always I like to make turkey breasts and I wrap them in bacon because it's just much more moist, much more delicious. And I know that always goes quicker than, say, the rest of the turkey itself. But I'm also making sure that I use this time of Thanksgiving, and I'm working with the Missionaries of Charity in Baltimore and the Franciscan Center in Baltimore, and we're also going to be distributing a lot of food to the homeless in the area. That is so nice. Talk, speaking of that, talk to us about your food truck. What's the latest there? Well, the latest is that we finally got it out of the shop. It's such a challenging thing to have a restaurant on wheels. We're having always constant difficulty with finding the right employees. But during the months of December through March, we actually, while we don't have a lot of food truck events, 
We actually donate our time and all of our resources to feed the homeless in the area, especially hot meals in the winter months. And so that's why we're actually doing a little bit of a drive to raise some money so that we can do our charitable work. People can simply go to platinggrace.com, learn all about it, and hopefully support us with some donations so that we can do the good work of feeding people. Yeah, you do amazing work there. We probably have about 30 seconds left or so, maybe give or take. But before I let you go, any quick and easy side dishes or desserts that you can suggest if someone maybe has to bring something to a Thanksgiving dinner that someone is hosting? Just just asking for a friend here, Father Leo. <laughs> well, I, nothing, you know, fresh fruit is always a welcome, very welcome dish, especially when the food is so heavy. And I just simply recommend taking a lot of cut fresh fruit and combining it with some lemon, some mint, and some sugar, and letting the fruit marinate in that, and then just serve it with a little bit of whipped cream. You can't go wrong with that. I love it. It sounds so delicious. I'll keep that in mind. Father Leo, great to be with you. Thank you so much, and God bless you, and have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And same to you. God bless all. Well, finally tonight, a Catholic priest in Washington State recently left the rectory to buy donuts for a marriage prep class, and instead, guess what? He was part of a special delivery. Father Jesus Mariscal says that he heard a homeless woman calling for help. Well, turns out she was in labor and about to have her baby. Father Mariscal helped to deliver that beautiful little baby and then his brother. Uh, they had been born several weeks premature. Father Mariscal says that he visited the two children and they are doing fine. Congratulations and God bless them and their mother. And we thank you for watching tonight. Remember, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, X, and Instagram at EWTN News Nightly. I'm Tracy Sable. Good night and God bless.